This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to this special series on third world nationalism on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Megu. I also host my own podcasts, Independent Thought and Freedom, and also a story club, Global Politics and Global Cultures. In the wake of a rise in nationalism around the world and its general condemnation by liberals and the left, in addition to the rise of China and Russia, We have put together this series on third world nationalism to nuance the present discourse on nationalism, to note its centrality to anti-imperial, anti-colonial politics around the world, the reconfiguration of global power, and its inextricability from mainstream politics in Africa, Asia, Latin America, and the Caribbean. Today, my guest is Erez Manela, author of The Wilsonian Moment, Self-Determination and the International Origins of Anti-Colonial Nationalism, published by Oxford University Press in 2009. Welcome, Erez. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I, you know, I forgot to ask you before, but did I pronounce your name correctly? You did. Oh, great. Okay, good. I, I don't like to mispronounce people's name. Uh, people always do that to me. So, <laughs> um, Yeah, so uh, I'm joining you from Trinidad and Tobago in the Caribbean, so this part of the colonial world. Uh, where are you joining us from? I'm right, so- right outside Cambridge, Massachusetts, which is okay. where the campus is located. Okay, excellent, excellent. Now, uh, I really, really think the work you've been doing uh, is very, very important historiographically, uh, and um, you know, it, I, I, I really want to to dive into it. But the way we like to start off our interviews is by having the author give a little bit of of a background to himself and to tell us what got you interested in the question of anti-colonial nationalism. Yeah, well, that's a that's a terrific question. Um, I actually didn't set out to write about anti-colonial nationalism uh, at the beginning. Um, I sort of came to it from the archives, and the way it happened is, is and this is this is back in the previous millennium when I was back in uh, graduate school, mm-hmm. um, and I was taking a, a seminar. I had to write a research paper, and and I wanted to write. Uh, about the history of uh, the relationship between the United States and the Middle East before World War II, because my sense was that 
that period, pre-World War II period, wasn't sufficiently covered in the existing literature back then. Mm-hmm. And so I decided, well, okay, uh, I'll start. Uh, I focus. I decided to focus on the interwar period and, and being organized. I said, well, when does that begin? It begins around 1919. And I just went to the State Department um, uh, documents, which uh, which were available back then in um, microfilm, if you if you remember those days. Yes, those, I those do. Ancient technology. <laughs> and, and I started, I loaded the microfilm machine and I started looking through in the library, uh, looking through the documents one by one. Just basically, the I decided to focus on Egypt because it's one of the main countries in the Middle East at the time. And I um, I started just looking at what was in State Department files um, under Egypt uh, in 1919. And and as soon as I began scrolling through the documents, I, I came across a petition um, addressed to Woodrow Wilson from uh, Egyptian leaders asking for support uh, for Egyptian independence in light of the gathering conference in uh, in Paris and in light of his uh, wartime declarations about self-determination. And I thought that's interesting and I continued looking uh, through and um, there's another petition and another petition and one from the merchants of Cairo and one from women's group and from Christ- Christian groups in Egypt and, and so on and various uh, slices of the population and they were all all sorts of civil organization political organizations political organizations etc they were all sending petitions to Wilson um, and within within half a day I, I had several dozen petitions that I I'd read and I thought to myself, that's really interesting. I, I'd studied some, some of this history and I, I'd, I'd never really uh, heard of this, um, of all of this activity surrounding, mm-hmm. surrounding this, uh, this, this idea that Wilson was going to support or the United States was going to support Egyptian independence. At the time, of course, Egypt was a British protectorate. Um, and so that, that just struck me as fascinating. And, and then I was having a conversation a bit later with, um, with, uh, my, uh, my doctoral advisor at the time. And I said, um, well, this, I, I told him this story, uh, this finding. And he said, oh, I, I, he told me, I, I was just reading a, um, a manuscript of a book that was about to be published, uh, that tells the famous story with, with which I ended up starting the Wilsonian moment also, the famous story of the man who would become Ho Chi Minh and his activities in Paris in 1919 and the famous petition that he was involved with to the peace conference uh, on behalf of um, of the people of Indochina, as it was known then. Mm-hmm. And and that was another data point. And then I thought to myself uh, in, in, in the conversation, we said, wait, this is, there's something going on here that isn't limited just to Egypt or just to the Middle East. There is a... Um, there, there is something transnational, perhaps even global, that's going on here that is really interesting, and it doesn't seem to be in the existing literature, at least not in any uh, detailed way. And that's how I, that's how I started on the on the research that that for what became the Wilsonian moment. That that's really fascinating because, um, as you know, as someone myself who has you know been looking at, at this question for a long time. Uh, Bandung has been the kind of a pivotal kind of conference and moment, right? That's 1955, mm-hmm. uh, as seen as like you know the international decolonization movement, and uh, you you know your your work uh, definitively 
I think, uh, you know, puts it to a much earlier point. I think 1919 is probably, I think we can say the beginning of it really and not 1955. Uh, and I'll, I'll tell you from, from, our, from our vantage point here in the Caribbean, we also, we had a, a general strike in Trinidad in 1919 um, led by uh, Arthur Cipriani, who, Captain Arthur Cipriani, who fought in World War One, mm. And out in, in the Caribbean, many of the, the people who went out to fight in World War One and came back started to lead trade unions, socialist movements, and, uh, mm. um, you know, movements for self-determination. I don't know if you know who CLR James is, our course. great intellect, right? So his first book was about was a biography of Captain Cipriani, the life mm. of Captain Cipriani and West Indian self determination. You know, so uh, so really, I uh, we so so we knew about the history of Cipriani coming back and fighting for the barefoot man and all the discrimination uh, that he witnessed. Uh, because Cipriani was actually a Corsican, a French, uh, we have a lot of French Corsicans here, but he sympathized uh, with the black soldiers. And um, so this was uh, very interesting. So so what you've done here in the book for, for me, and I think for others who will read it as well, is, is further contextualize and in, internationalize really what was going on. I mean, we put it in the history of the British Empire, the rise of the Labour Party, World War One, but but the Wilsonian thing is very interesting. Mm. Uh, you know, and and also a lot of people forget, you know, especially, you know, let's say the 20th century, uh, you know, anti-American type of anti-colonialist, that America was an anti-colonial power. And that, um, I mean, C.L.R. James, who I just mentioned, when he wrote about the, the Haitian Revolution in the Black Jacobins, he contextualized it within the French Revolution as well, which illuminated a whole bunch of, uh, of, of aspects uh, that you could only get from an international perspective like that. And I think that's what you're doing here. And, and that, that, you know, we forget that, um, that even, um, what's it, uh, Roosevelt in World War II was, you know, had these anti-colonial uh, aspects about him. And so, so this Wilsonian moment you're talking about is very interesting. Can you expand on it for us? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I think it is it is fascinating, and and obviously, I don't I, I don't want to claim or or sound as if I'm claiming that 1919 was the origin point of uh, anti-colonial nationalism or of anti-colonial nationalism as a transnational phenomenon. Um, of course, uh, nationalists in various places that we now think of as the global South were uh, resisting imperialism long before 1919. Um, and they, many of them also had a global or transnational, at least uh, imaginary, and also a set of uh, contacts and connections mm -hmm. prior to 1919. Um, you know, Indian nationalists, of course, who had been fighting the British, uh, British Empire long before 1919 were traveling in North America and, and um, other parts of the Americas and other parts of, of the world and connecting with uh, other nationalists in other places. Japan was an important node, of course. 1905, the famous Japanese victory over uh, Russia in the Russo-Japanese War mm -hmm. was, was another moment that really lit um, 
uh, a lot of expectations across the uh, uh, across the colonial world where uh, people were saying, "Oh, here's an, here's the first modern example of a of a non-white power defeating a European power and, and um, you know, mm-hmm. symbolizing a shift in the balance of in the, in the global balance of power." So, so you have things that that happen. And uh, I'll just either. add, if you don't mind, the Go Pan-African ahead. Conference in 1901, organized Absolutely. by the Trinidadian Henry Sylvester Williams. Yeah, mm-hmm. Absolutely. So there, there's many examples of transnational anti-colonialism prior to 1919. Um, I, think, I think what 1919 does is um, amplify and accelerate uh, in a very significant way uh, connections and trends that had been present. It adds uh, some rhetorical elements that might have been might have been present in scattered form previously, but get concentrated um, in around 1919 around this uh, this the rhetoric of self determination uh, becomes uh, that that particular term becomes uh, far more important and central. Um, and and of course the combination of of the arrival of the United States onto the world stage, and the arrival of the Bolshevik Revolution, uh, where the term you know it's the Bolsheviks who are the first to really bring this idea of the right to self determination to national self determination uh, to the center of uh, of international of the international conversation. Uh, so the combination of the the arrival of these these two powerful and at least in some sense anti-colonial powers, uh, so in the United States, uh, mm-hmm. is is really um, uh, accelerates the process and and offers or at least seems to offer new resources, uh, rhetorical resources, and new leverage. Um, and, and, a, and a renewed sense of a new sense of mobilization for and connection for lots of uh, anti-colonial um, um, uh, activists. Um, the other thing I think that's that's worth saying is is of course you mentioned that that we forget that the United States was viewed uh, commonly before World War II as an anti-colonial power. What's interesting about this is that, of course, the United States was both a colonial and an anti-colonial power. Mm-hmm. Uh, it had colonies, which it had itself, in a very literal sense, uh, gained after the Spanish-American War of 1898, mm-hmm. uh, 99 and it was governing these colonies, most notably the Philippines. Um, and and yet it uh, was also uh, critiquing at the same time, Americans were critiquing European colonialism, they were sometimes presenting their own colonial um, experience as superior, um, and they also talked fairly early on. The uh, uh, some Americans, at least some American leaders, talked about uh, the colonial rule as uh, as preparation for independence. Uh, all the way back to William McKinley, uh, we have this idea, this rhetoric that the point of the purpose of U.S. rule in the Philippines is uh, is to uh, is to teach "quote unquote" Filipinos to uh, govern themselves, and so by the early 20th century, you get, for example, Indian nationalists who are needling the British 
by by saying, look, the Americans have only been in the Philippines for a few years or for a decade or for whatever, depending on when this statement is being made. And they've managed to move Filipinos closer to self-government than you Brits have in centuries of governing India. So what's going on here? Why are you why are you such mm-hmm. bad colonialists? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think an important um, uh, thing I want you to expand on uh, to contextualize this for, for listeners to really understand the importance uh, of this is to elaborate one on what the Wilsonian moment was and also um, to, to, to um, emphasize and clarify for people, for listeners, that World War One was really a, a war of empires, mm-hmm. and how mm-hmm. and how different the world was before World War One, uh, with all these empires. Uh, because you know, I think people might anachronistically put our contemporary geography back then. Yes, I think that's very important. So, War of Empires, of course, is the title of a collected volume that uh, I had the uh, the good fortune to co-edit along with uh, Robert Gerbaut uh, from University College Dublin. And we had a really stellar list of contributors uh, looking at the various um, participants in the, in, in the First World War. Um, and they were all really to the last one, uh, the major participants, empires, including, of course, the United States. Uh, they all possessed colonial empires. Uh, there were different forms of empires, of course. Some were landed empires. Uh, others were um, were overseas uh, empires. Some uh, had nation states, uh, more fully formed nation states at the center of the imperial edifice. Uh, others were more traditionally centered around a, a dynasty. Um, but they were all empires. Uh, all the European uh, participants, the United States, Russia, Japan as well um, was was an empire and all fought in a very significant way for imperial goals. So we, we like to say, we say in that book that it was a war by uh, empires, that it was fought by empires and for empires. And that has all sorts of ramifications, both for understanding uh, the the goals of of the various the aims of the various powers for understanding the scope of the fighting we forget sometimes that uh, a great deal of the fighting in World War One happened outside of Europe it happened in South Asia it happened in the Middle East it happened in Africa both East and West Africa um, and we we uh, sometimes forget or used to forget until the recent um, a spate of literature on this, that uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of the individuals who fought in the war or labored in the war uh, came from outside of Europe. Uh, you know, millions of Indians, hundreds of thousands of Africans, Indo- Indo-Chinese, North Africans, hundreds of thousands of Chinese laborers uh, who were shipped to Europe to, uh, uh, to work um, on the front lines. Uh, so when when you think of of the war as a war of empires, you are think uh, you you can't really escape um, the the global nature and the global impact of the war. 
unlike much of the older literature, which would have us believe that this is this was primarily European war, and we need to be concerned primarily with Europe. And as you've mentioned, the the origins of World War One is an anti-imperialist assassination. Absolutely, in the name of the of South Slav nationalism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, so we so we had the, this world that was carved up into empires, and you had this great war of empire versus empire, uh, multinational, multi-continental. These were global empires fighting other global empires. And the theater was also global. So you had this. And the Wilsonian moment has to be contrasted very sharply with this, I think, for us to really understand its significance. So can you do that for us? Yeah, that's a that's a great point. Um, I think the first thing we need to remember, if if we want to put ourselves uh, in the minds of many people at the time, was that the war um, was a tremendous shock, both for people for people around the world, both in the global north and in the global south. It was far longer, far more destructive, far more deadly than anyone had anticipated when it began, and it it also was by far the, the deadliest, most destructive, most global war since at least the Napoleonic Wars of a century before. So it was by far the most uh, destructive war of anyone's living, within anyone's living memory at the time. Mm-hmm. And so what this means is that people were looking at this in- massive disaster unfolding around them uh, in their world, were primed to assume that whatever comes after the war will be very different than what came before, that there is no way that humanity can continue uh, along the same trajectory given the, the massive destruction that the previous trajectory had, had wrought. And so that's one of the reasons that people come to 1918, 1919, to the armistice and the beginning of the peace conference with a great sense of plasticity, you know, with a belief that um, great change uh, is possible, at least. And this is true uh, both for, um, you know, from Wilson and his supporters, it's true for uh, the Bolsheviks and their supporters, and it's true for many anti-colonial nationalists. And so what happens when you have a sense of plasticity, when you think that great change is possible if only you act, you have an incentive for mobilization. Mm-hmm. And so for me, the Wilsonian moment is first and foremost about mobilization. Um, it's about people who may have, who may have had the goals of, of liberation already in place previously, but now they, have, they might have new language, new rhetoric that they can um, deploy. But more importantly, they, they see in front of them new opportunities to mobilize new leverage, as it were, on the arc of history. Of course, in retrospect, we know that um, the changes were far, in some ways, certainly in the global south, um, more gradual and less radical than many at the time had expected. We know that the leverage that they had was less than they might have thought. Uh, But that doesn't change the fact that at the moment, at the time, um, there, there was a, there was a, a, certainly a sense that mobilization was uh, is going to pay off, and was necessary. And hence, all of these petitions that I start with at the time, hence the Egyptian 
a set of Egyptian leaders setting up a, a delegation um, demanding from the British authorities to go to Paris, even though they were not invited, because that's what the leverage was going to be in their view. That's how you have uh, the man who becomes Ho Chi Minh later um, uh, writing up uh, writing up that petition with, along with others. Uh, you have all these delegations, Koreans, Chinese, uh, Indians. Uh, you have W.B. Du Bois, of course, organizing another Pan-African Congress in Paris uh, in 1919. Uh, with quite a few, as I'm sure you know, um, participants from the Caribbean as well as from Sub-Saharan Africa and, and North mm-hmm. America, continental North America, um, and and so many people are are rushing, uh, either physically going to Paris or are trying to act uh, in remotely on the opportunities that they see emerging from Paris, uh, and I and so again. To wrap up, mobilization, I think, is really, for me, the, the key word to uh, describe the Wilsonian moment. You talk about, um, you, know, the la- the, you know, the language and ideas, and absolutely that, that was there. But uh, it, it gets much more concrete than that, doesn't it? I mean, it's the Treaty of Versailles, you know, that happening in Paris. It's the League of Nations, right, where India was going to be actually part of i i don't know was was india part of the league of nations eventually i i can't even remember yeah that's that, guts. that's an interesting point um at the at the peace conference um the british empire um had you know there was a british delegation but there was also separate representation uh, for british dominions so who of course participated significantly in the war so uh uh, this, this uh, I'm thinking here of the white dominion. So you had separate representation yeah. for Canada, for New Zealand, for Australia, for South Africa. And you had separate representation for India, separate from the British delegation. Mm-hmm. Um, and and at the time, I, one of the documents that I remember finding and getting very excited about during my research on this is uh, the British um, uh, Secretary of State for India. His name was Montague. And he was saying, look, um, on the one hand, we are we are giving India a separate representation, and on the other hand, we are refusing to acknowledge uh, Indians as, as having any sort of sovereignty of their own, uh, unlike the white dominions, of course. Um, and that was reflected in the fact that unlike the delegations of the dominions, which were selected by the populations of the dominions, by the governments of the dominions, the Indian population was... Um, Select, uh, rather, the Indian delegation or the members of the delegation were selected by um, the government of, of the unrepresentative, unelected government of the Raj, and and Montague was noting back then that this is that this is a a, a paradox or a, a point of tension that is bound to uh, is bound to um, to fall apart at some point that they can't. That the British can't, on the one hand, argue that India is a is a separate place, and on the other hand, um, keep the population unrepresented uh, forever. And in fact, the Indian National Congress, in in its meeting in, in late 1918, um, elects a separate slate of delegates for the conference. They say the delegates you have selected 
to the government of the Raj uh, are not representative. And we have a different slate of delegates that is representative of us, including one of them was, uh, was Gandhi. He was one of the three delegates that was mm-hmm. um, selected. So, so you have this kind of tension uh, between represent. It's it's somewhere between empire and uh, and, and nation is this is the status of uh, of uh, India. Yeah, yeah, interesting. That um that alternative delegation that was presented in nineteen nineteen was it? It uh, so if I'm remembering correctly, the Indian National Congress uh, met. It was either December of eighteen or or January of nineteen nineteen. They met every year in the winter, so um, Mm -hmm. it it was somewhere around then. And that's when they, just as the peace conference was was getting uh, was getting started, they selected their separate slate. But they were their delegates were never seated. Uh, But uh, but nevertheless, they uh, Gandhi stayed in India. But some of the others, uh, namely uh, Tilak, who was uh, mm-hmm. already a very well-known na- uh, leader of the national movement in India, um, did actually go to Britain and, and work to um, uh, propagate the the national the, the the cause of Indian self-determination. Right. Yeah, I, I was just trying to contextualize it in the Indian situation because Gandhi was also uh, became a leader, even though he was Hindu, of the Khalifat movement movement to retain the um, the caliph in um, Istanbul, uh, which is very interesting, and that was part of the Indian uh, the, the, the Hindu Muslim unity. At, at the time, and so so that's right. So very, very interesting, different kind of global empires overlapping and and whatnot. Uh, very very interesting to 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 put everything in global uh, perspective. Now, there th- you mention the um, the Bolsheviks, and uh, and and you've also mentioned in the book um, this idea of of Wils- uh, of Wilson versus Lenin. Um, now, be, because in a, what Wilson was was offering, uh, for if I understand the argument uh, that you're making correctly, is that you know it was a liberal anti-colonialism, and so the the Bolsheviks had a socialist uh, anti-colonialism, and they were sort of at odds. But the the League of Nations and and Versailles. Um, you know, won out in a, in a sense. I mean, uh, at least among you know, um, you know that that section of the global population, uh, as a in a sense a, a, a temporary triumph of liberal anti-colonialism because it did sort of fail. Can you elaborate on that for us and tell me if I, I have it right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, first of all, uh, it's it's interesting. Because we we tend to think of um, the the Bolshevik Revolution or, or in 1917 or of 1919 as as in some sense the beginning of a of a Cold War of a conflict between uh, the United States and its you know, American capitalism and and Soviet uh, communism, um, but uh, in fact. In the moment of, of 1918, 1919, uh, there was um, there was some overlap between mm-hmm. what Wilson was saying and what Lenin was saying, mm-hmm. and that overlap, at least on Wilson's part, was intentional. Part of the point of for Wilson of adopting the rhetoric of self determination as his own was to co opt 
the Bolshevik uh, program, um, not because he ag- agreed with it uh, in terms of uh, uh, you know the Marxist elements of it, uh, but because he was worried that it would that it would spread. And for him, therefore, co-opting the elements that were acceptable to him were way, if you want to use the later term, was a sort of early strategy of containment. Um, yeah, and- if, if, if I may just interject here, so just to clarify for the listeners, so so the Wilsonian idea that he was promoting that the anti-colonial nationalists and activists around the world were latching onto was the idea that uh, of self-determination for all peoples. So in that, both Wilson and the Bolsheviks shared that vision of self-determination for all peoples. It's just that the way they implemented it and conceived of it was different. Is that well, correct? So, so it's it's interesting. I mean, it's it's there are the complicated story here. So, right. and we have to we have to kind of figure out the both sides before we uh, the Bolshevik and the Wilsonian side before we really can understand how they fit together. So, uh, Wilson was concerned. His from his perspective, his goal was to ensure to to set up some sort of international system uh, that would prevent a future war of the scale of World War One. Mm-hmm. Um, and his view was that one of the main causes of the war was autocracy. That is to say, governments that did not answer to their peoples. And, and his prime example, of course, was the, the German Empire. Uh, the German Kaiser was the prime example of autocracy. And of course, the Russian Tsar before the revolution, another prime example of autocracy. And so Wilson borrowed this this idea of self of the importance of self government, which is of course inherent in in American the American political theory and uh, um, since the very beginning the, this notion of, of self government, and he inter- globalized it. And the idea was that if you had more uh, states that were self governed, they would be less likely to be aggressive internationally. So uh, there were less, the fewer autocracies you have. That was his theory. Um, mm-hmm. You know, sometimes political scientists call this democratic peace theory. Right. And, and so he was he was started out by adv- advocating self government for that reason as a, as a way to pr- to preserve peace or to ensure a more peaceful international order. Lenin, of course, from for his part, his main goal initially was to break apart the Russian Empire. Um, and to reconstitute it as, as a revolutionary entity and to break up other empires and, and spread the revolution. And so from that perspective, self-determination was a, um, a, a useful tool, a, a useful wedge that would break apart, apart existing empires, starting with the Russian and then you know, the German, the British, the French, and would allow for a revolutionary reconfiguration of these uh, so, so they mm-hmm. they they both came to self determination or, or self government in the Wilson case from different directions for different purposes, but they alighted on a similar set of rhetorics. Uh, once uh, Lenin and Trotsky popularized the phrase self determination, Wilson borrowed it. He hadn't used mm. it previously. He borrowed it. Okay. Um, simply, he just took it and he replaced the flip phrase self government, which he'd used before, with the phrase self determination. Ah, okay. But if you follow this line of reasoning, you you see that even though they were both using the same phrase, the the uh, the, the content is the a bit different. The context and yeah. and purpose of the usage is is different. 
And then you, on top of that, you have to build the fact that those in the colonial world who heard that phrase and who utilized it uh, had goals that were different still from either Wilson or Lenin. They had mm-hmm. goals depending on the location. It was different in China versus Korea versus India, etc. Um, but in each in each place, it meant something somewhat different. Uh, in all in all cases, it had a it had a liberationist edge to it. But liberation, exactly from what and toward what, mm-hmm. um, differed somewhat from case to case, and that was part of the attraction of the phrase: its flexibility. Right, right. Now, so can you explain a bit about the League and the mandate system in terms of how that reflected liberal anti-colonialism? Because uh, I think for many people, uh, they, I mean, the, the League has kind of been erased from, from historical consciousness, this failed idealistic attempt. Uh, and then, you know, the UN is kind of a re- rehabilitation of that idea. But, but I think that, uh, you know, along with the mandates, and, and the mandate kind of survives in the, the, the whole controversy over Israel-Palestine and, and whatnot, but otherwise it's kind of erased. So if, if you could just, you know, um, elaborate on that for us, I think it would be very useful. Yeah, absolutely. So um, obviously, once you get to the peace conference in Paris, the, the Bolsheviks are not there. They are not invited. Uh, it's, it's Wilson and then the leaders of the other major allies, and especially the, the British and the French, um, and, and, and Wilson wants a League of Nations. He insists that that's his top priority. Um, and uh, he also has, as one of his 14 points, uh, in point five, the idea that any, any arrangements relating to colonies uh, that come out of the peace negotiations should take into account um, the interests of the population's concern. That is, he's, he is insistent that uh, to the extent that colonialism continues, it, it should continue uh, with uh, the, the interests of the population's concerned in mind rather than simply um, the interests of the colonial or imperial powers. And so the League uh, Mandate Commission is, is a compromise between uh, British and French and, and others, uh, South Africa, for example, desire to add colonial possessions to their territories, um, particularly in the Middle East, in Sub-Saharan Africa, um, and in um, the South Pacific. Um, with so co- a compromise between the expansion of, of colonialism and this Wilsonian idea, reformist idea, not revolutionary, that mm-hmm. colonialism ought to operate along, as I was describing before, the American colonial model, meaning it ought to be uh, a way to prepare, you know, yeah, is this, like is, a tutelage, a, a tutelage, exactly, idea of tutelage to prepare people who I think the phrase was something along who are not yet ready for the strenuous uh, conditions of modern life to prepare them to to self govern, um, and so the mandates uh, are designed. Uh, to 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 uh, as the instrument for that um, uh, for that system for for that procedure. Initially, I think Wilson believes that the mandatory powers uh, will be what he conceives as of as neutral powers, uh, non-colonial um, Scandinavians, 
the Swedish, uh, the, uh, the Danes, maybe the Americans themselves, that doesn't work out um, because there's just no interest um, either in, the, in Scandinavia or in the United States for that sort of mission. And so the mandatory powers largely end up being the British and the French themselves. Right. Because, you know, I, I'll tell you, uh, my, my understanding of the mandate system before I, I re read your work was, was just, you know, cursory and whatnot. I, I figured it was okay. They were breaking up the Ottoman Empire and they couldn't figure out who would get what. So they just made it into a mandate. Um, and, and that was just to solve the problem of colonial squabbling. Mm. Uh, but, but it's actually... Uh, something you know much different from from what you're describing. It, it, it's it's a it's a tutelage system. And it's kind of like a, a UN administered territory, a bit like yeah. maybe what the Western Sahara became. Uh, well, is, the, is that right? The, the mandates once the U, you know the the U, the League of Nations in effect transitions to the United Nations in World War II. Uh, the mandates uh, the mandate commission becomes uh, the, the the trust terri trust territories of the post war world. Right. And some of the uh, mandates of the interwar period, especially those in the um, in the uh, islands in the South Pacific, become trust territories. Uh, in the post nineteen forty five world, so yeah, I, I think I think you're right. It, it wasn't about division of territorial division per se, because empires had a lot of experience in dividing territories among themselves. This was not a, a main issue, and in fact, uh, as it pertains to the Middle East, there was already an, a, an imperial agreement in place, the so called Sykes Picot Agreement uh, between the British, the French, and also at some point involved the Italians and the Russians for the partition. Of the Ottoman Empire, so th there was there, there was already a plan for a, a straight out imperial partition, um, but it was Wilson's insistence that um, there be some sort of that that these territories don't simply uh, get swallowed up into colonial existing empires, but that there is some sort of structure of international uh, international governance or uh, uh, international oversight. Um, over uh, over these, th that's what the mandates really. That's that's how the mandates are really different, or at least uh, yeah. in theory, are designed to be different from straight colonialism. This element of uh, international League of Nations oversight. Yeah, towards independence, a tutelage in a yeah. In theory, In theory, that was different. that was to be that was to be the uh, the yardstick by which a colonial government was going to be. Yeah. Judged. That's exactly when it happened in the Caribbean because made, that's when the Major Wood Commission came down here and they started to give uh, representative government. So, yeah, so again, it puts our history within this international context, which I think is very, very important. Now, I, I know you have to go soon and I could hold you here at least twice as long as we have spoken already, but I, I know I have to let you go. But, um, but I, I would like you to explain to our listeners then how um so how this translated in the four territories you looked at uh russia not russia india korea china and egypt and then uh the failure of liberal anti-colonialism I, I think that's important yeah uh, well, what uh, what joins all of these four places um, that I looked at most closely in the book is that uh, all of uh, the, uh, um, nationalist activists in all of them um, adopted the rhetoric of self-determination. All of them mobilized 
uh, both internationally vis-a-vis -vis the peace conference, uh, either sending delegations to Paris. Well, actually, all of them sent delegations or at least tried to send delegations to Paris. Um, and what also um, characterizes all of these four places is that all four saw um, popular mass mass popular mobilizations um, in the early part of 1919 that uh, that became paradigmatic of, of the nationalist uh, movement or, or in all four cases are considered uh, turning points in the nationalist uh, nationalist movements and those are the 1919 revolution in Egypt, the March 1st movement in Korea, the May 4th movement in China, both of these dates, of course, referring to 1919, uh, and in India, Gandhi and Satyagraha, uh, which also begins in the spring of 1919, uh, in, this, in this context, at least, so I argue. Um, now, the, the context of the mobilizations are, is, of course, slightly different because the conditions in each of these places is, is somewhat different. Uh, mm -hmm. Korea is a Japanese colony, so they're mobilizing against Japanese rule. Uh, China is a, a, a independent, theoretically an independent country, but in reality a semi-colonial, uh, under a semi-colonial regime. Um, and so the Chinese mobilization is is against imperialism more broadly and also against, to some extent, against their the weakness of their own government in the face of uh, of, of imperialism, um, in in India and Egypt, they're both uh, mobilizing against British rule. Different types of British rule in each of these places, and different types of mobilization, of course, depending on the local context. Um, now, in all of those places, and and I, I don't really have time to go into the specifics yeah. of the goals of each of these movements, they each had different goals or yardsticks. Um, they all hoped for American support. They all hoped for Wilson's personal support for their cause. Uh, none of them received it uh, in any significant way. Um, and so what also is, what also characterizes all four of these places is, uh, is the disappointment and disillusionment as the spring turns to summer, as the decisions get made at the Paris Peace Conference and do not take into account the demands of these four movements. So, so the issue of Japanese colonialism in Korea never gets ta even taken up. Um, the, the Chinese, the one issue that they bring before the Peace Conference, they, they, which is the uh, Shandong question, so-called, uh, they, they lose that. Uh, argument at the peace conference, it gets um, decided against them. Uh, the Egyptian demands never really get taken up, and the Indian demands never really get taken up. Um, and so the, the way I, I end the book is that uh, in all of these four cases and in others, which I don't focus on, mm -hmm. uh, what you have left with uh, as the Wilsonian moment fades by the end of 1919 is, is you have a newly energized and mobilized anti-colonial nationalist movement that is looking for new ideas, for new leverage, uh, for um, you know, new ways to pursue the goal of liberation. And that's where, at least in some cases, um, the example of 
um, the the Russian Revolution, which around the same time, late 1920, the Bolsheviks are also about to win or winning the civil war. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it becomes clearer that they will survive and that their revolution will succeed, at least in Russia. Um, and, and for at least some of these anti-colonial activists, the Bolsheviks, uh, the Russian revolution becomes the new lodestar um, that uh, the font of ideas, of, of rhetoric, and possibly also of, of actual political uh, support in the international arena. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, you, you make the point as you know well that uh, whereas say in India and Egypt, for example, the 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 major movements were reformist in nature, cooperative with the British. But after you know this failure, they became you know the National Congress and and also in Egypt became firmly anti-colonial. Yeah, I, I I know you have to go. I'm going to. I um I wish I could keep you here longer. There's it's so interesting. Uh, you I think it's in very important work what you're doing. Where can people find out more? Uh, besides, you know, obviously they should get your book. But you have a website or anything that people can take a look at. Uh, yeah, I have a faculty web page which right. uh, has uh, a list of under the publications tab has a list of my publications and I would say at least half of them you can click through and they're available in full text if, if you're interested. So that's, yeah. that's the first place I would go if, uh, if I were interested. Excellent. We'll, we'll put that link in the description for sure. But uh, I want to thank you so much for the interview. It's been very informative and enjoyable. Thank you very much for having me. It's a, it's a real privilege and a, and a pleasure. And, um, the time really did fly by very quickly. Yeah, yeah. Well, once again, the book is The Wilsonian Moment, Self-Determination and the International Origins of Anti-Colonial Nationalism. And we've been speaking to its author, Erez Manela. Thanks also to you, our listeners. Make sure you sign up for our notifications so you don't miss any new interviews on this channel in future. I look forward to seeing you on the next episode. Thank you.